Well, let's turn together in Matthew chapter 6. We'll look beginning in verse 16. And while we're finding that together, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we, on this Reformation Sunday, think of all of those men and many women as well who not only stood for the biblical gospel, but many were persecuted and many died for the gospel of Christ. Many died for the spread of the true scriptures in the language of the people. We praise you, Lord, that men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, so many others stood up for the gospel as explained in the scriptures alone. That they they stood up for salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone and to the glory of God alone. We praise you for the fact that we are the recipients of that heritage. And yet, as we saw yesterday, Lord, and as we see in the, the cultural Christianity all around us, so much of that has been lost once again. And so we would ask you, Lord, to reform your church. We would ask you to bring revival to the people of God, not in a sense of emotion or ecstasy, but in the sense of a love for the gospel and a love for the Christ of the gospel. I pray that our time this morning in your word would further our sanctification, would further our genuine relationship with you, would further our growth in Christ, our knowledge of Christ, so that Christ might be honored and glorified in our lives. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. At various times, all of you have, and I have, maybe some intense times, you might call it, where you have a need for what we might call elevated communication with the Lord. Elevated communication with the Lord. Now, that's kind of a fancy phrase, because I was avoiding the phrase that we're more familiar with, that we have times in which we need to pray hard, right? What does that really mean, though? What does it mean to pray hard? Does it mean more emotion? Does it mean that you close your eyes more tightly than usual? Does it mean that you, instead of closing your eyes like this, you you look like that? What, What does it actually mean? Does it mean using the word please a lot more? Or as cute elementary kids are prone to do, using the word just between every third word. What what does it mean to pray hard? Well, I would submit that the idea of praying hard has more to do with a personal concentration for a specified period of time. And in fact, the Bible gives us examples, gives us models of what it means to pray hard. And that is the example of fasting that goes along with prayer. We know fasting goes along with prayer because basically every instance of fasting in the Bible is associated directly with prayer. And our text this morning is no exception. Jesus has just finished outlining the disciples' prayer and immediately following this, he gives his teaching on fasting, making a very close connection between fasting and prayer. And so this morning, to continue our mini-series on how to pray in power, as we've been looking at this in Matthew 6, I want to look at what I'll call the power of concentration. The power of concentration specifically in the area of fasting. Just some general introductory thoughts. Fasting is simply abstaining from eating and sometimes even of drinking water for a period of time as a means of humbling yourself before God. It's not to be considered a way of impressing God or people, but it's a true, genuine act of heart devotion. It's universally associated in Scripture with prayer. There is maybe one exception to this in the book of Esther, but prayer is heavily implied even then. In the Bible, a fast might be for a 24-hour day, 
2 Samuel 3 has this example. It might be for just a night. Daniel 6 has that example. It might be up to three days. It might be up to seven days. And in some occasions, 40 days. But the most common fast noted in the Bible was a one-day fast from morning to evening with food permitted at night. That was the most common fast. Or to put it in our terms, you skip breakfast and lunch to devote your mind and your heart more fully to prayer throughout the day, ending the day with a meal to both have physical relief and spiritual relief, that your, your prayers are done. Under the law of Moses... To Israel, the only prescribed regular fast was once per year on the Day of Atonement. There might be the occasional call for a special day of fasting or time of fasting because of a specific circumstance or or emergency of some sort, but only once per year was actually mandated. Under the law of Christ in the New Covenant, there is no mandate commanding specific days of fasting But by no means was the idea of fasting just eliminated, and we'll get into that more as we go. I want to try to give you a broad look at this issue, and we'll work our way to our text this morning. But I think setting fasting into its larger context is going to be helpful. It'll make Jesus' teaching more understandable when we do get to it. So I want to give you four angles to approach this issue. I'll give them to you up front. Four angles. First, the abuse of fasting. Second angle, the advantage of fasting. The third angle, the assumption of fasting. And then finally, we'll do the application of fasting. So the abuse of fasting, the advantage of fasting, the assumption of fasting, and the application of fasting. I want to start off first with the abuse of fasting. And it's needful for us to start here because the abuse of fasting is primarily what Jesus is going to address in Matthew six sixteen through 18. The abuse of fasting in the Old Testament was at times called out and confronted by God. And fasting for many became an externalized empty ritual. In fact, that at times became the entire practice of all of Israel. For example, when God was promising judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah... God resolutely stated to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 14, 12, when they fast, I'm not going to listen to their cry. In Isaiah 58, 1 through 10, really the most classic example of God's rebuke of unworthy fasting in the Old Testament, God condemns the unfaithful Jews because they're asking this question. They're asking God, why have we fasted and yet you don't see us? In other words, God wasn't answering their prayers. God was not responding to their fasting. And so God condemns them for making a show of fasting in a way that everyone can see while they're simultaneously harboring hateful thoughts against their own brothers. So God asks a question in return in Isaiah 58, 6. Is this not the fast which I choose? to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to release the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the afflicted homeless into the house? When you see the naked, you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. In other words, fasting was to be associated with godliness and love and genuine faith. Not merely some act of self-affliction to try to manipulate God into doing something. And God promises in Isaiah 58, 9 that if they'll humble themselves, if they'll repent, quote, then you will call and Yahweh will answer. You will cry and He will say, here I am. But He rebukes them because they simply were trying to manipulate God by going without food. In the time between the Testaments, leading rabbis began teaching and living out the idea that fasting really now became the mark, the distinguishing mark of a pious Jew. That the more you fasted, the more pious you were, even though it was mostly ritualistic. All kinds of things now were were accompanied by fast. Vows were now confirmed by fasting. Even sorrow over sin was accompanied by fasting, but not in the sense of of internal sorrow, but in the sense of a a showy uh, repetition of prayers of sorrow. 
All kinds of special fasting days were added and, and they were meant at first to be special days, but now they became annual and then monthly and so forth. Fasting became the way that a Jew demonstrated his piety and, and that he was to be impressive before God, to gain merit before God. And you would look at your neighbor. Well, he fasts once a month. I better fast twice a month. And this guy says, well, he's fasting twice a month. I better do four times a month. But this is very important, and this will be addressed by Jesus. The prevailing mood of all the new added fast days was of mournful sadness. The appearance of self-denial externally. And, And if I could look sadder than you, then my fast was more appropriate, and so forth. Later, even in the early church, this mutated into exaggerated asceticism, self-denial in order to appear more pious. Some in the Colossian church were guilty of the error of self-abasement or self-humiliation, which is a, a euphemism for excessive fasting for the sake of effect. And since the practice was paired in the same verse, Colossians 2.18, with the worship of angels, with seeking visions and all kinds of mysticism, it's almost certainly that the idea that was becoming rampant in the church was the use of fasting to induce a mystical experience. It was mysticism. I I saw a vision of an angel because on the eighth day of my fast, I was so hungry, I, I couldn't see straight, but I saw an angel. Just to be extremely clear about this, nowhere in Scripture is the idea of fasting to experience heightened spiritual consciousness or anything like that ever, ever condoned. You don't fast in order to experience something. Paul spoke of this exaggerated asceticism in Colossians 2.23. He speaks of, quote, the severe treatment of the body. And he pushes back by declaring that this has, has zero spiritual value in helping sanctification. It doesn't help your Christ-likeness at all. And so given that Jesus had significant understanding of the major role that abuses of fasting played in first century Judaism, it's interesting that he completely breaks with the traditional norm for fasting. What he's going to say is shocking, and nobody was saying this. Matthew six sixteen. Now, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Okay, just in that first half of a sentence, he just nailed everyone. First of all, he calls the supposedly most spiritual people in Israel hypocrites. And he tells everyone else, don't do what they do. Now, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus makes a contrast between godly fasting with with contrasting that with the external showy fasting demonstrated by who he calls the hypocrites. Those who want to appear pious, appear holy, but they have no internal reality of faith. He says, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. The Pharisees and others who were trying to be religiously impressive would make certain that their appearance told everyone they were fasting. During Jesus' day, the Pharisees fasted twice per week, almost certainly on Mondays and Thursdays. Little side note, fasting was required by the law one time per year. I've already said that means the Pharisees were going 104 times over the requirement. Now, why Mondays and Thursdays? Well, traditionally, those were the busiest market days in any village or town. So when the Pharisees would walk around, they had the most number of people going ooh and ah at them. They they didn't pick Sunday afternoon. They picked the times when everybody was out. And they would, as Jesus said, neglect their appearance. What does that mean? It could be by by not washing, by not grooming themselves, by sprinkling ashes on their head, by keeping a gloomy and downcast look on your face. And get this, by using pale makeup to make yourself look like you're you're just drawn and, 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 and blood has drawn from your face. 
They give the appearance of great suffering. In other words, they put way more work into the appearance of fasting into what it was actually all about. And yes, they got the applause. They got the silent ooh and ah of all those around them. But Jesus declared, if I can add to this a little bit in my own vernacular, uh, they got everything they, were, they had coming to them right then. They got the oohs and the ahs, and that's it. God doesn't pay any attention to that. And by contrast, Jesus says that when the true believer fasts, he says, anoint your head. Meaning, groom yourself. Don't look terrible. Use the normal things that you, you would do. Wash your face. Because the goal of fasting isn't to be noticed by men, but to be seen by God the Father. There were entire rituals that the Pharisees would go through. They had, they had their little, their little uh, jar of ashes and they had their makeup and they, they had the oil that they avoided and they, they would take time to make sure that they looked horrible on Mondays and Thursdays and they're all walking around and you know how human nature is. Oh, that guy looks even worse than I am on Thursday. I'm going to really outdo him. Just getting ridiculous with it. Now, obviously, if you are fasting, those close to you might need to know why you're not sharing a meal. But the spirit of Jesus' instruction generally is to keep people out of this for the most part. That's the abuse of fasting. The second angle with which to approach this this issue we'll call the advantage of fasting. The advantage of fasting. I'd like to try to reduce the advantage of fasting to three different times as given in Scripture just by way of example. First, I want to talk to you about the advantage of fasting in times of mourning. In times of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. I would say it's fair to assess that in Scripture, this is the major reason for fasting, is times of mourning. The one prescribed day of fasting under the Old Covenant was the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23. Why is this associated with mourning? It is a day of fasting because you're mourning your individual sin. You're mourning the sin of the nation. It's a day of seeking God's forgiveness, God's continued favor. Leviticus 16, 29 and 23, 27 says that on this day, you shall humble your souls, or some translations, afflict yourselves. Almost universally, this is understood to mean fasting because it's a Hebrew word that means to become emaciated, to be hungry. And this was measurable and it was important because just a few verses later in Leviticus 23, the person who does not abide by this fast is to be cut off from Israel. They're cut off. Everyone was to do this. It was a day of mourning. Judges 20 records a civil war between the tribe of Benjamin and the rest of Israel. And and it was a sad day. In one battle, 18,000 men of Israel fell to the sword. Judges 20, verse 26, Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before Yahweh and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. And yet the war wasn't over. With great grief and sadness by God's direction, the other tribes then nearly wiped out the entire tribe of Benjamin. Tens of thousands dying, leaving only a few hundred men of the tribe alive. And the mourning in the midst of that time was accompanied by fasting. In 2 Samuel 12, David is sick at heart. He's committed adultery and murder, and he's been humiliated before God and having to confess these sins. And his adultery produced a child that God had declared would not live because of David's sin. The baby boy was sick, and the baby boy was dying, and David sought God. He, he fasted, and he spent the night lying on the ground. Those around him tried to give him food, but he wouldn't take it because he was in grief. He was in mourning. And what grief he was experiencing Can you imagine the grief of knowing that by the consequences of your own sin, a baby boy was going to die? In Acts 9, Saul was confronted by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And being utterly convinced of his unbelief and his sin, Saul was blinded by God. And for three days, he didn't eat or even drink. And that takes you to the brink of death. Acts 9 verse 9 says this. In fact, 
Paul's later writing indicated that he never forgot, he never forgot the horrible feeling of discovering that he was persecuting the very God he thought he was serving. I do want to have us turn to another passage briefly. Turn with me to Mark 2. Just a few pages over. Mark 2, looking at verse 18. Still under the heading of in times of mourning. Mark 2 records a time when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked why, why they fasted regularly, but Jesus' disciples weren't fasting at all. Mark 2, 18. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the Pharisees I've already spoken about, but just to give you a little background here, in this particular instance, the question included some of the disciples of John the Baptist. These are men who had decided to continue after John the Baptist's teaching, but they weren't continuing after the part of his teaching where he said, look to the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb. They continued after his teaching, and some of them actually began to adopt a much more serious and somber religious life, very similar to the Pharisees, because they're actually lined up with the Pharisees on this. They, they, they lived a life where fasting was dark and, and brooding and somber and mournful. It was a time of showy, religious moping around. And to answer this question in a total turnaround, Jesus answers by using the parable of a celebration, a party, a wedding. Verse 19, And Jesus said to them, Can the attendants of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The typical wedding celebration in the Jewish village lasted for a week. Friends and guests were invited to simply enjoy the festivities. Now, in our culture, generally speaking, the bride is often the focus of attention with the added tradition that the bride's family pays for the wedding. I don't know where that came from. But in this culture, the guests are the groom's guests. It's totally different. By the way, this is the first reference to Mark. It's subtle, or in Mark, rather. It's subtle, but it's the first reference in Mark to Jesus as the bridegroom the Son of God that is here among them. Why would you fast and be somber when the Son of God is with you, when the, when the bridegroom is there? Jesus kept the law of Moses perfectly while he was on earth, but he ignored the man-made traditions of the Pharisees that were now considered equal to the law. Total disregard of them. And this was infuriating to the Pharisees. But Jesus says there will be a day of soberness and sadness. Verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. This is a tragic scene. Imagine this. A a festive wedding week. but, But right in the middle of the week, some of the guests who have been invited who actually secretly hate the groom, they take him away and they murder him. And how his friends will fast in that day. Jesus is speaking of himself and this is an indictment against the Pharisees who will take part in the illegal trials and murder of the Son of God. And the disciples will fast. They will mourn. So first, there's the advantage of fasting in times of mourning. Second, in the angle of the advantage of fasting, the advantage of fasting in times of preparation. In times of preparation, And I particularly hope that this will be memorable to you because in our lives we prepare for many things, don't we? We prepare for tests, job skills, marriage, parenting. But I believe that the concept of spiritual preparation has very much been lost. It's often eluded the Christian. But there's actually numerous worthy examples of spiritual preparation in which fasting plays a part. There are various occasions in which a person fasted in spiritual preparation, for example, for confessing sin. Now listen carefully, because I think this is going to go against our culture. Our often shallow understanding of the gospel sometimes leads us to believe that confession of sin is like ripping a band-aid off. That it should be quick and as painless as possible. Lord, I'm sorry I did this. Amen. But to many saints in Scripture, confession of sin was actually something you prepared to do. 
you prepared for carefully and fasting at times was involved with this. The prophet Daniel read in Jeremiah that the time of Israel's exile was almost done. Daniel 9.3, he says, So I gave my face to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Why? He was about to confess sin on behalf of Israel. In the coming years, the returned exiles back in Israel prepared to confess sin. Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 1. On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel gathered with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The seed of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Jonah chapter 3 records the people of Nineveh believing God in response to Jonah's preached word. And the time of fasting from both food and water was decreed in Nineveh to prepare to repent. That's very different than our conception of confession of sin, isn't it? Jesus engaged in spiritual preparation, obviously never to confess sin, but he did engage in spiritual preparation. In Matthew 4, the gospel records the temptation of Jesus. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness preparing to face Satan himself And this entire time was spent in fasting and in prayer. Now on the larger stage, the fasting of Jesus is associated directly with Israel as a nation. He's associating himself with Israel. Moses fasted for 40 days and nights. Deuteronomy 9. Elijah fasted 40 days and nights. 1 Kings 19. Israel wandered the wilderness 40 years, symbolized by the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is associating with Moses, the lawgiver, with Elijah, the prophet, and with Israel herself. But on the smaller stage, on a personal human level, Jesus' fasting is associated with tremendous dependence upon the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit who led him to the wilderness. And it is upon the Spirit that Jesus will, in human terms, depend in preparation for the greatest of all spiritual tests that any human being has ever faced. So there's the advantage of fasting in times of mourning, the advantage of fasting in times of preparation, the third advantage of fasting in times of great need. There are many other categories we could do, but I wanted to do mourning, preparation, in times of great need. During the, during the days of Samuel the prophet and judge of Israel, Israel had fallen into terrible idolatry, but Samuel called them back to the Lord. In 1 Samuel 7, verse 3, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you are to return to Yahweh with all your heart, then remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and set your hearts toward Yahweh and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel gathered all the people in the area of Mizpah, And they fasted as a people. And none too soon, by the way. The next passage says, Then the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah. In other words, hey, all the fish are in one barrel. And the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Then the sons of Israel heard it and were afraid of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to Yahweh our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now I want you to notice this. They're spiritually weak. They're not saying, We will stand in the strength of the Lord. We're saying, they're saying to Samuel, Would you pray for us? They were weak. And yet they humbled themselves in fasting in their time of spiritual weakness and time of great need and the Lord gave them tremendous victory over their enemies. During a time when King David was being ridiculed by his enemies, almost certainly as a result of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. I mean, after all, everyone knew that David was nicknamed a man after God's own heart. And here he is humiliated by his own sin But he was weighed down with the fact that the consequences of his sin had extended to the whole nation. And so he's pleading with God for help. In Psalm 69.10 he says, When I wept with my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. This describes a time of intense fasting and prayer. And in this case, accompanied by weeping and humiliation. Nehemiah 1 records Nehemiah, the Jewish assistant to the Persian king, 
he heard that the walls of Jerusalem, after a start had been made in rebuilding them, the walls had been burned, broken to the ground, the gates burned, the walls broken down, and now the beloved city of God's people was completely vulnerable to the surrounding enemies again. Nehemiah 1.4, now it happened that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Great need. Acts chapter 1 gives at least a, a plausible example. The text doesn't directly state this, but I think there's reason to believe that after the ascension of Jesus Christ, yet before the coming of the Holy Spirit, the believers in Christ in Jerusalem may have been fasting together. Uh, there's two hints that, that give us this reasonable conclusion. First of all, Acts 1.14 says that this group, the apostles and others numbering about 120, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. That has a high probability of including fasting because of the need they were in. The other hint, though, we've already seen earlier in Mark 2, that Jesus said when the bridegroom goes away, the disciples would do what? They would fast. And what was their great need? Their great need was that they were awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower them to embark upon the church age and to be those that would turn the world upside down. Well, we could find many other advantages of fasting. We just limited it to in times of mourning, in times of preparation, and in times of great need. Turn back to Matthew 6, and I want to point out something because... Some of you might be nervous that we're adding some new rule or law to the Christian life. So to help our understanding of how this fits into our lives in the new covenant, let's look at the third angle concerning fasting. We've looked at the abuse of fasting, the advantage of fasting. The third angle I want to look at is the assumption of fasting. The assumption of fasting becomes clear with the precise phrasing Jesus uses. Verse 16 Now, whenever you fast. Whenever, this is an adverbial conjunction. It's a connecting word that almost every single time it's used speaks of a repeated action. Once in a while, it speaks of a one-time thing, but almost always it's a repeated action. In other words, something that's a a regular part of your life. Things like whenever you wake up in the morning, whenever you go to bed at night, whenever you eat breakfast, whenever is repeated. Now, I've already given you some background, and with that background, you can see that that fasting is very much at the forefront of the spiritual life of all the Jews. They were all aware of this. This was a major part of their culture, whether done right or done wrong. And even though there was a warped and misshapen practice that was now the norm, that didn't mean that fasting was inherently wrong. Just because the Pharisees had skewed the view of fasting as something done excessively to be super spiritual... Jesus never discounts fasting. He simply returns it to the internal spiritual reality it was always meant to address and represent. To be clear, there is no clear command to fast at given intervals or for specific reasons in the New Testament. But the example and the assumption is presumed. I'll give you some examples. Luke chapter 2 records the account of the widow Anna who spent her nights and days in the temple devoting herself to prayer and what? And fasting, particularly on the subject of looking forward to the coming of Messiah. Anna is the example almost certainly in mind when Paul wrote concerning widows in the church. In 1 Timothy 5, 5, now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in petition and prayers night and day. Almost an exact word-for-word phrase concerning Anna in Luke 2. Cornelius, the centurion, the Roman centurion, who was a God-fearer and was made ready by the Holy Spirit for the gospel of Christ and was known for his prayers and, and giving to the poor, several later manuscripts add, and his fasting. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 speaks of the sexual predictability that is to characterize marriage with the exception of mutually agreed upon periods of prayer and several manuscripts of the New Testament add of prayer and fasting. Matthew 17, 21, the text 
records Jesus saying concerning dealing with a demon, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, to be fair, Matthew 17, 21, the entire verse isn't found in the earliest copies of Matthew's gospel. Now, I'll come back to that. Mark 9, 29, similarly, Jesus is recorded as saying, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Later manuscripts add, and fasting. Now, I mentioned Cornelius in Acts 10. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 7, 5, concerning the time of prayer in marriage. Matthew 17, 21, and Mark 9, 29, concerning prayer and fasting to deal with a demon problem. Because in all likelihood, the idea of fasting was added later by scribes. And this was added as what's called a gloss. It's not intended to attempt to add to the inspired text. It's commentary. It's explanation. And in case that makes you uncomfortable, we have glosses in our English Bibles. They're words that appear in italics They're added to the English translation to help explain what otherwise would be a really awkward sentence in English. In the case of the addition of references to fasting, when manuscripts were copied over and over and over again, it was possible for scribes to perhaps lose the fact that this was a scribal addition and not part of the original text. And so with the process of text criticism, textual criticism, of discerning the most accurate renderings, it showed scholars that fasting was almost certainly not in the original. Now, why am I pointing this out? I point this out for a very good reason. The early Christian scribes painstakingly and with great care and great integrity and great detail were writing out copies of the New Testament. These were men living their Christian lives in the church. They were familiar with the story of Cornelius. They were married men seeking godly marriages as 1 Corinthians 7 seeks. They were aware of the spiritual forces coming against the church of Jesus Christ and what the normal course of action was in the spiritual warfare. In other words, these scribes added the gloss, the commentary, and fasting because that was the normal practice and everyone knew it. That was what was normal. In 2 Corinthians 6, 4-7, through Paul declares what he and his fellow ministers of the gospel have endured. Afflictions, distresses, hardships, beatings, imprisonments, disturbances, labors, sleeplessness. And they do so, quote, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in unhypocritical love, in the word of truth, in the power of God. Now, between the negatives... Afflictions, distresses, hardships, beatings, imprisonments, disturbances, labors, sleeplessness, and the positives in purity and knowledge and patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, unhypocritical love, the word of truth and the power of God in between the negatives and the positives is a transition in hunger. This is often thought to mean starvation and want. But he's much more specific in chapter 11, 27, and 28 about actual starvation. It's much more likely that Paul and his ministry companions dealt spiritually with the afflictions, distresses, hardships, beatings, imprisonments, disturbances, labors, sleeplessness in order to operate in the ministry in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, and so forth. The way they turned that terrible suffering into ministry effectiveness and spiritual victory was in hunger by fasting and praying. The only specific direct reference to fasting in the New Testament came in the context of church leaders seeking the Lord's will concerning the spread of the gospel. Acts 13, 1-3 records the elders at Antioch praying and fasting to determine to send Paul and Barnabas out on a church planting mission. And similarly, on that missionary journey, as churches were planted, Paul and Barnabas, in turn, as reported in Acts 13, 23, appointed elders in every church having prayed with fasting. Early in the second century, the earliest known handbook for Christian living was known as the Didache, just means the teaching And it argued heavily against the hypocritical Monday and Thursday fasts of the Pharisees. But in response, 
the Didache teaches Christians to fast on Wednesday and Friday as a way of being different. It wasn't ever presented as a law, it's not presented as a command, but rather a demonstration that genuine believers in Christ may fast and enjoy the tremendous benefits. So the New Testament era and the early church shows us that fasting was commonplace. It was a well-known practice and therefore certainly acceptable for the church today. I want to be very clear on one detail though. The fasting portrayed often in the Old Testament, that which included terrible mourning and even a sense of hopelessness at times, Jesus gave a new emphasis, even telling the Pharisees that his disciples weren't fasting while he was there because he was there. And many may fast for all the reasons I've outlined so far, but never, listen carefully, never is our fasting to be accompanied by a sense of hopelessness or being completely dominated by tragedy. Christ isn't physically with us, but we have the Spirit of whom? Of Christ. He is with us. We are in Christ, and He is in us. So if you do fast, it is really what we might call a new covenant context of joyful thanksgiving centered on the gospel, that whatever reason you're fasting, the cross remains at the center of your life. And Paul's promise in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we shall always be with the Lord. That's the shining light in whatever darkness you're experiencing that inspired a fast. Well, that brings us naturally to our fourth angle as we consider fasting. We've looked at the abuse, the advantage, and the assumption of fasting. I want to look now at the application of fasting. I want to sort of synthesize the array of reasons for fasting we've seen in our survey. And I I want to offer some principles for fasting. We'll do about four of them. With fasting not being commanded, but certainly assumed. The first principle, fasting is a focus of the mind. Fasting is a focus of the mind. I think we use the word, the term heart sometimes out of a fear of intellectualism. And certainly scripture uses the term uh, heart but the fact is, is that our, our faith is a faith that's to be comprehended, understood. It is intellectual. Peter commanded that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It is a mind activity. I give this principle first because for one reason or another, fasting might not be possible for you. It might not be practical for some. There may be health concerns. There may be a, a need for physical strength in your line of work. You may have the type of line of work that you look, if I go without food, I'm going to fall over and something's going to run over me. And so it might not be practical. It might be challenging. It might even be impossible. But keeping at the forefront that fasting is a focus of the mind, there are other forms of this concentration, this focus, which could accomplish very much the same purpose. It might be something like designating a long period as a special time of prayer, an entire morning, an entire afternoon. When was the last time you took three hours to pray about one thing? It may be designating a time in which your sole focus in prayer for three days straight is on one topic. It might be designating a season of time in which you consistently highlight one theme in your prayers each and every time you pray. It might be beginning a prayer journal with a specific time at a specific time which you record specific prayers and scriptures related to that prayer topic. So there's many ways to accomplish that focus of the mind. It's the second principle, and we've touched on this, but I want to say it more directly. Fasting is linked to holiness. It's linked to holiness. In Zechariah 7, the Lord chastised the returned exiles for fasts which were not consistent with their actual lives. The people were oppressing the weakest of society. They were plotting evil in their hearts against one another. And the Lord confronts them and he asks Was it actually for me that you fasted? That's a reasonable question. In other words, fasting without the lifestyle of pursuing holiness is a waste of time. It's disingenuous. And in fact, what that tells us is that the time of fasting ought to be accompanied by a time of self-examination, by a genuine yearning to, to lead a holy life, and perhaps every fast should be begun with a confession of sin. Here's a third principle. 
Fasting may be part of determining God's will. Fasting may be part of determining God's will. Now, I want to be very clear about this. God's will is laid out with extreme clarity in Scripture. There's no lack of clarity about the will of the Lord for all things in life. But we do have choices to make. We do have, at times, difficult decisions. And while we also look to Scripture, a time of fasting may be the way the Lord chooses to do one of two things. To either make His will extremely clear to you providentially, or to give you so much peace that you don't mind being in the dark. That it's okay. Here's a fourth principle. I've alluded to this, but I want to give it its own weight here. Fasting may be part of self-examination as its own goal. It may be part of self-examination as its own goal. I mentioned a moment ago that self-examination might be the beginning of fasting, but perhaps it should be an occasion where that's the only goal of fasting. To root out sin and pride and selfishness, perhaps in a specific area of your life, asking the Lord specifically to convict your heart of areas of sin you don't see. Now, to be very clear, abstaining from food has no intrinsic spiritual value all by itself. The spiritual value comes, though, as you follow in the footsteps of countless saints who seek the Lord in the season of special prayer. It's actually a pretty recent development that pastors in the church are sort of seen also as part-time counselors. That's a recent thing. In days past, the pastor of a local church was not seen so much as a counselor that you make an appointment with and and keep that appointment every week for several weeks or months. Instead, the, the pastor shepherded his flock by means of writing letters to them. Writing letters to the congregation. In Northampton, Connecticut, the great theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards, he wrote such a letter on June 3rd, 1741, to an 18-year-old woman in his church. Her name was Deborah Hathaway, and she was facing an incredibly difficult decision a life-altering crossroads. And she wrote her pastor asking for spiritual guidance. He did give her some specific shepherding in a letter, but he made certain to include the following. Quote, Under special difficulties, or when in great need of, or great longings after, any particular mercy for yourself or others, set apart a day for secret prayer and fasting for yourself alone. Special difficulties was his way of saying, when you have no answers, set apart a day and just pray and fast. For Edwards, this was the means to receive the help and the peace in times of desperate need. Perhaps for many of you, some times of fasting and prayer would be beneficial for some or all of the occasions I've spoken of. But I have to remind you of one last thing. And this is so important because this is actually the whole point of the text. You remember Jesus' main point in our text that because of salvation given at the cross of Christ, because our goal is not to impress others but to seek the Lord, our fasting as members of the new covenant with God through Christ, yes, it might be in a time of grief. Yes, it might be in a time of mourning. Yes, it might be in a time of need or desperation or fear or doubt or confusion. But always, 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 these times are are times of seeking the Lord. They're lined and surrounded with a new reality. One that wasn't yet experienced in the Old Testament. The reality that Christ has already come. That the bridegroom has come. And that through His Spirit, He is with you. I want to return one last time to the scene in which the Pharisees were asking Jesus why the disciples weren't fasting like he was. And I'm going to finish his thought now. I won't have you turn there. Just listen. Mark 2.18. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the attendants of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, we heard that part. We heard that. But Jesus continues with two quick metaphors still in the context of having been asked about fasting. He continues, 
No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, that patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. In other words, under the new covenant, we don't and we cannot fast like those who are still looking for Messiah to come. We cannot sew new covenant fasting onto the garment of the old covenant. We cannot put new wine of the new covenant fasting into an old wineskin that will burst. When we fast, here's the whole point. Jesus said, don't look all gloomy like there's no hope. Why would you do that? I've come. I'm here. Look lively because Christ has come. Your hope is in Christ. Your heavenly hope is secure and certain. This isn't just a discipline. Well, I got a plaster of smile on my face. No, the smile is real. And yes, Christians have sorrow, but our sorrow is outlined with a smile. And yes, Christians have worries, but our worry is bolstered with confidence. And yes, Christians have need for guidance, but our need is supported by the certainty of God's sovereignty. Yes, Christians must examine themselves, but we have the great promise in Christ of Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. So, should you fast? Jesus assumes you will. But not as those whose only hope is in some pitiful external display of sorrow and anguish. We fast with a genuine smile because Christ has come. And if I could add a little premillennial note. We fast with a smile because Christ is coming. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We do live in a world that is bombarding us with grief and sorrows and desperate situations. We still struggle in our own sin and we we need to conquer that sin through the power of the Spirit. We struggle with our own fears. We need to conquer those fears in the power of the Spirit. We struggle with disobedience. We need to conquer that disobedience through the power of the Spirit. Lord, I pray for us as a local church body that we would be those characterized by prayer and perhaps for many, prayer and fasting. Not just for ourselves, but for great and grand lofty things. We, we think of the, the elders at the Church of Antioch crying out to you in fasting and in prayer before sending out Saul and Barnabas. We think of Saul and Barnabas fasting and praying as they appointed elders in every city. Perhaps some here would fast and pray for the lost souls who may have heard our conference yesterday. May we fast and pray for the lost souls of our family and friends that we know have believed a false gospel or no gospel. May we fast and pray to discover the inner recesses of the wickedness of our own hearts and, and look to you to make us more and more like Christ who proceed from one degree of glory to another. I pray, Lord, that never would we be those that put on an airy show, but one that is true and real and genuine. Even as we pray in desperation, perhaps even as we fast in desperation, we may have joy because Christ has come and Christ is is coming. For these things we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.